Well, let's pray. Lord, it's so easy to pray that you would watch over us and comfort us and cause, Lord, us to be delighted in the things that you do. But over everything, Lord, it's, that we should pray for is that uh, your name would be exalted. Because, Lord, we're told over and over again that the glory belongs to you. And that it's your name, Lord, that um, we look to to be displayed so that everyone can see that the Lord, he is God. And I pray that you do that for the Peru team, Lord, that you would be pleased to, to show yourself strong and mighty and glorious. And I pray that you would do that in this church too, Lord, because we acknowledge, Lord, with great humility that it's not about us, and we know that, that it's all about you. And you pr I just pray, Lord, that uh, your word would go forth and touch hearts and just uh, chase away the darkness, Lord, and cause the light of the living God to be ever-present in our lives and to grow continually. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You would think that if you're going to give a message from one of the shortest books in the Bible, you ought to be able to do it fairly quickly. But this is going to be at least two parts. And um, we'll see whether it ends up being three or whether you chase me out of town before we get to the third part. But anyway, I want to spend a few minutes in a moment or two, in the book of Jude, which is a whole one chapter long. So if I say verse one, don't ask me what chapter. There's only one. J. Masham Graham, or J. Gresham Machen, he was one of the leading uh, conservative scholars of the first half of the 20th century. And he taught for many, many years at Princeton Seminary. And he fought against the ongoing trend toward liberalism that was encompassing so many institutions of higher learning and uh, so many of the intellectuals at the day. <clears throat> and when... Uh, that institution, the institution of Princeton Seminary, determined to embrace what at the time was called modernism, substitute the word secularism if you want, when that was uh, sweeping over a good part of the country. And they decided, the um, faculty at Princeton, they decided to embrace it. And they didn't... Um, pay very much attention to Machen. He left the seminary. He felt that was the only thing he could do since he wasn't going to be enfolded in what he considered heretical teaching. In an earlier lecture at Princeton, he ends his lecture by saying, modern culture is here in conflict with the Bible. The church is in perplexity. She's trying to compromise 
She's saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And rapidly she's losing her power. She says, the time has come when she must choose. And many in the church were saying, we can compromise with modernism. We have to if we're going to stay relevant with the culture. The culture is trying to squeeze God out of everything. So we have to adjust what we say so we don't lose our place in the culture. There was a group that says the culture is in conflict with the Bible. Let's just compromise. Otherwise, we won't have a voice at all. Machen said that fundamentally the message is this Bible and the message of the Bible. That was his message. The Bible and the message of the Bible. We can get caught up in present circumstances and allow those circumstances to dictate our response or we can rise above them and get past what's on the surface and get to the ultimate. We can get past the cultural gatekeepers of the moment and get to the true voice of wisdom. We can get past false messages of salvation, false salvation, human betterment or progress, whatever that means, and get to the ultimate message of salvation, of new life and forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. Machen said, I'm going to be about the Bible, God, and salvation. And the liberal faculty wouldn't let him, so he left. He went to Philadelphia, and he founded Westminster Theological Seminary. And soon he was asked to begin a series of radio messages to enlighten the population of Philadelphia to the gospel. And the first broadcast began in 1935. And in the first message, he asked the listeners what were the most important emergencies they faced. He listed some he knew that many would name such as economic emergencies because the country was still coming out of the Great Depression at the time, 1935. And he says, you're recovering from the Great Depression. And he says, you've got national pressures and you've got individual pressures, the seen world. But that's not what the ultimate pressure is. The ultimate issue is your standing before God. Many of you are restless, not content. You're a hungry soul. Where are you going to find food? It's not going to come from yourself. It's not going to come from me. You're going to find it in an old book. Then he says, I'll see you next week. And he goes off the air. And I'm sharing this because whatever age you're in, you're always going to be talking about and facing some present emergency. It's always an emergency. And when that one passes, there's always another one to take its place. So the ultimate 
emergency is your standing with God and my standing with God. Because all the rest of it is going to fade. It's not that it's not important. It's not the ultimate importance. Jude 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We read constantly of churches accepting things in their midst that are obviously forbidden in Scripture. And we're not surprised because it's gotten to be such a common occurrence. Yet so many of these things were threats 2,000 years ago. And the church found itself at the time of Jude infiltrated by false teachers that used the grace of God for an excuse for unrestrained immorality. And Jude's got the task of warning the church about such people and calling people to persevere in the grace of God. So Jude is the brother of James, and James soon became the head of the church. And he's also, since he's the brother of James, and James is the half-brother of Jesus, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus too. And like his brother James, he really didn't believe in Jesus during Jesus' life only after, or perhaps just briefly before the crucifixion. But during the main part of Jesus' life, he didn't believe that he was the Messiah. These Christians that Jude is writing to were facing an onslaught of false teaching. And much of it was involving sexual promiscuity. The church was being infiltrated by False Christians preaching a different gospel. Verse 2 tells us that Christians are the people whom God has called and that they are loved by God and that they are loved in God. What does that mean? It's a promise of God's love in an insecure world for Christians are loved by God and his love enfolds them. It's a double guarantee that God's love will not fail us, but it protects us from outside and it strengthens, strengthens us on the inside, from within. And Jude says we are kept for Jesus Christ. That means we are secure for the future when Jesus comes again. We're not from promised fame or success or wealth But when we are despised by the world, God has not let go of us and will not let go of us. Jude uses three terms. We have been called, past. We are loved, present. And we are being kept, future. Verses 3 and 4, which is about as far as we're going to get. Beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of translations say, our only sovereign and Lord, Jesus Christ. Why does that make a difference? Well, because you don't use the word, see the word sovereign applied to Jesus in the New Testament very often because the word sovereign in the Old Testament always seems to apply to God the Father. But again, this is his way of talking about Jesus is the one that the Old Testament is talking about so often. Jude's original intent intent was to write about their common salvation. He says that's what he was going to do, but now he's not. Something had happened. The circumstances arose that meant he had to urge his teachers or his readers to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints, to the holy ones. The new subject for his letter is the action he wants them to take. He not only wants them to have faith, but to contend for the faith. And the word contend here has the implication of an ongoing wrestling match that will never cease while we're in this world. Hence the term theologians have used to describe the church in this world, the church militant. We are in an ongoing battle. As long as we are on this earth, it will never stop. We are combating those that would destroy the word of God, that would come against the church, that would come against scripture, which is constant. The battle will not end. The other term for the church is the church triumphant, and that's the church in heaven. The battle's over, the battle's won. The church is triumphant. But here, it's the church militant. We're called to contend for the faith. Not just to believe the faith, but to contend for the faith. And the immediate reason for contending for the faith in the church is a group of people that are having a deadly influence on the lives of ordinary Christians. The faith is that which was taught by the apostles and is held in common by all Christians. The faith was delivered by God and it's not open to change. It's not open to revision and it's not open to addition. It has to be zealously guarded and defended. When wolves come in among the lambs, the sheep need to be warned so they don't fall for any deception. Sometimes false Christians want to subtract from the gospel, and sometimes they want to add to the gospel. The defense against those that would do either one of these things is a rock-solid clinging to the faith, all the faith given to us by the Lord. 
20th century theologian Karl Barth was once asked what he thought was the single greatest obstacle to reconciliation between the Reformed churches and the Roman Catholic Church. He replied, I think the greatest obstacle could be a very small word which the Roman Church tacks on to every one of our propositions. This very small word, and. When we say Jesus, the Catholics say Jesus and Mary. We seek to obey our Lord Christ, the Catholics say, or the Catholics seek to obey Christ and his earthly vicar, that is to say, the Pope. We believe that the Christian is saved by the merits of Jesus Christ, but the Catholics add, and by his own merits, that is to say, by his works. We think that the only source of revelation is the scriptures, the Catholics add, and tradition. We say that knowledge of God comes from faith in his word, as it is expressed in scriptures, the Catholics add, and from reason. There's a world of difference when you add the word and, because it's, it's Jesus and nothing. The faith was entrusted to us. The ultimate responsibility for the gospel lies with God, which is why it's, it's such a terrible thing to change it. It isn't a thing invented. It's a thing that's given. It's not found out by us. It's delivered by God himself and delivered into our custody, custody so that we may keep it for those that are coming after us. If God has given us a gospel and he's not planning on giving us another one, then we have to guard it as highly precious. The faith was entrusted once for all. The word has the meaning of finality, of definiteness. There's no room to think that God grants extra insights and additions down the years of Christian history. One would think it would be obvious that God would give us an unchangeable gospel. But it's quite an amazing gift. In Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, with a sense of wonder, it says, He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his law. Praise the Lord. Relativism is any theory or knowledge based on the idea that all values or judgments are relative, differing according to customs, differing according to circumstances or to persons. What's right for you is not right for me. If my truth is different from your truth and so on. It's all relative and can change. Gregory Kukul gives a great definition of relativism. It's called feet firmly planted in midair. It changes. It's got no foundation. It's just wisp of smoke. It makes compromise real easy, though, but it gives deadly results. 
Machen saw this at Princeton, and today it bears no resemblance from what it was. Relativism was at the heart of Jews' opponents, and it's at the heart of our culture too. Can't we all just get along? Why are you so narrow? Aren't you going to be loving? Compromise or truth? So unloving. It's easy to see why Jude has been neglected for so long, for he claims the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once and for all. Nothing more. Nothing's added, nothing's subtracted. And it was delivered to the saints by God. Who are the saints? All those who are Christians who have been declared righteous or holy by God. In the New Testament, saints almost a synonym for Christian. Those that wrote the New Testament would have found it awfully strange that we tend to identify sainthood with a few special people. Everybody that's a Christian is a saint. They're holy. They've been separated unto God. So our true identity lies in looking for Jesus Christ to return in power. If you want to see how that really plays out, read Daniel 7, and it identifies the saints as those who wait for the coming of the Son of Man to return in power. So what marks out a saint then is a desire to live life today in light of what will happen in the future. Jude speaks about these ungodly people who have crept in among them who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They change the grace of our God into a license for immorality, other translations say. One of the first questions the early church had to face was the issue Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul writes about this in the sixth chapter of Romans. To a skeptical Jew, it looked as if the Christian gospel turned God's generous gift of grace or gift of the law into an opportunity to sin. And this was, again, the attack that Paul countered in Romans 6. To the skeptics, the gospel could seem to offer total freedom today on the basis of total forgiveness tomorrow. Sin today, you'll be forgiven tomorrow. Do whatever you want. An open door for licentiousness, sexual immorality. God's going to forgive you tomorrow. His grace never ends. Paul rebukes this thought of action or action. He says to continue in sin would involve a contradiction of the Christian's new identity in Christ. Christians are to refuse to allow sin to have authority in their lives and instead are to yield the whole of their life to God. Heretic is a harsh word to use for anybody. But it seems that those that are in the church and yet deny Jesus Christ are only sovereign or master and Lord qualify for the term. 
Jesus has absolute right to our soul, our complete loyalty and obedience. The era of these men in the church of Jude is not some theological era, but a willful rebellion. They refuse to submit to Jesus Christ and engage in reckless self-indulgence. They've not grasped, or they refuse to grasp, the extent of Jesus' sovereignty. So they feel free not to take it seriously. Bad theology and bad morals get linked together. (coughs) If a Christian behaves badly, it must be because he's not understood the Bible properly or having understood it, refuses to accept its rule. Judas told us why he's writing. Next, he's going to tell us about the dangers ahead for deceivers and how we can contend for the faith, which is the purpose of his letter to begin with. And as J. Gresham Machen said when he signed off the air, I'll see you next week or so. Amen.